welcome to Piecemeal, a podcast hosted by the Emily Program and Veritas Collaborative. Piecemeal covers topics related to eating disorders, body image, and how society may influence our thinking. Please use your discretion when listening and speak with a therapist as needed. I'm your host, Jillian Lampert. Today, we have another amazing guest, Kelsey, here to share her recovery story. Kelsey is a registered nurse from Philadelphia who currently works in pediatrics and is pursuing her master's degree in psychiatric nursing. She's passionate about the intersection of the Christian faith and mental health, and in her free time, loves going to the beach and trying new coffee shops. Hi, Kelsey. Welcome. Thank you so much, Jillian. I'm so excited to be here. We're so, so excited to have you. So let's let's dive right in. I think I think a natural place for us to start maybe is with your early experiences with food. Some people, when they look back, they can remember a time sort of before their eating disorder when food was relatively simple or uncomplicated. Others recall it really always being a challenge. So tell us what food was like for you growing up and lead us from childhood into young adulthood. I'd say some of my early, early experiences were with food were were definitely joyful. My my visits to my grandma and my mom, which were very frequent, were pretty notorious for this casserole she made called jumble stew. My brother and I were obsessed with it, and we always had chocolate milk on the side. Um, my family is a huge beach family, which for me brings back memories of going out to di- try different ice cream shops, hand-dipped ice cream. So on that end, I have definitely a lot of joyful memories, but when I started to grow up in like elementary school, I became very, very picky and limited in what I was eating. And I, I was the kid who had a separate dinner than the rest of the family. My eating habits were getting kind of strange in that I would eat like raw vegetables by the handful and I would, I would eat uncooked pasta, but I wouldn't eat pizza, I, not a PB&J, not a cheeseburger, nothing like a kid would typically choose. I ended up seeing a nutritionist along with my pediatrician in elementary school. So that was never really like a weird aspect for me, like addressing nutrition in a professional way. Like I, I was pretty young when I think I was like seven or eight when I first saw that nutritionist. And I was seeing her up until I got to pretty much what they considered a healthy weight for me. And yeah, that's that's kind of my early, early memories of food, but as like a professional that now works with mental health and like someone who's struggled with an eating disorder, I look back and I wonder if I would have been diagnosed with ARFID, which wasn't being diagnosed back then, um, instead of just picky eating, um, there's probably more to it. But when I was little, it was just, she was just, I was always the tiny picky one. It was like who I was. It wasn't particularly life altering. It was just kind of how I was known as a little kid. It does sound like this complicated relationship with food was was sort of quote unquote normal for you. And maybe you and your family didn't, you know, didn't think much about it because it had been part of your experience. I imagine another reason that things might have gone unnoticed is that in our culture, it's the messages are so often normalizing behaviors around food. Can you speak a little bit about that, particularly as you take us into your time in college? Yeah, absolutely. If you've ever heard of Lindsay Hall, I mean, you have, she's been on this podcast. She's a recovery advocate and she talks a lot about how she lived in the cycle of an eating disorder. And I think that's pretty indicative of my experience. It was very much in and out of a cycle that I I couldn't get out of. 
as a teenager, I was a type A, like anxious cross country runner, which pretty much set me up for like this baseline of restrictive habits, I would say. It was no biggie to not have your period on my team. We had coaches who never took a day off. It just kind of was the baseline, unfortunately. It took a turn for me after I went through a slew of events and I, I didn't really know how to deal with it. So while my teenage body was trying to grow and mature like normal, I tried desperately just to keep myself small so I could feel like enough for the running community so I could blend in. And now I look back and I'm like, oh yeah, that's, that's how I was coping with it. If you asked me when I was 15, I, I would have said, I just, I just want to be small. I just want to stay small. But I really, there was, there was quite a lot going on. But in comparison to my teammates, I saw no issue with my habits. It also didn't help that I was in musical theater and I was always cast as a young character. So I, I wanted to feel, I wanted to fit the role and look like it. So during this time, I've always been a Christian, but at this time I was super ritualistic in my faith life too. I, I've not, now since been diagnosed with OCD, but a lot of the like long-standing habits came about early on um, and showed up in my faith life. I had to say a certain number of prayers to cover certain sins, carry out XYZ tradition, just because I had to, just because I had to. And it, it became the same exact way with food and movement, with school, pretty much, pretty much with everything. Ritualistic, calculated, compulsive. My parents stepped in, they started to get concerned. Um, but honestly, like I had talked about earlier, these like long-term traits of mine were around for a while. So it wasn't anything that anyone realized would really have kind of a lifelong impact on me. I do have a very distinct memory when my, my parents were concerned and my mom wanted me to go to therapy. And I remember screaming at her saying, I'm not crazy. And I think if my, if my teenage self knew now that I was in school for psychiatry, she would have like a literal heart attack. Um, but my, they, they really were trying to help me um, from the start. We took a lot of it at home and with my doctors, but pretty much treated it as a phase more or less, did weigh-ins, took some time off running. Um, and by the time college came, kind of they didn't see a problem anymore. Um, nobody really did. So um, went to college with, without any real plan or, yeah, kind of plan for in case it would recur. Uh, the whole phase concept definitely isn't true. Unfortunately, my, my eating disorder just, just morphed over time. When I went to college, I continued to run on the club cross-country team. But my body has changed. My life was changing. I couldn't manage to run and restrict like I used to. So I started to struggle with bulimia symptoms. Um, and from then on, I was just stuck in this trap of the eating disorder cycle, like I had talked about earlier. Yeah, that, that totally makes sense. And you're right. That is such a common experience, right? Getting stuck in that trap. And sometimes it morphs a little bit and changes and different symptoms come in or go out, but it just keeps perpetuating itself in many ways and keeps evolving as you go. I'm curious, were there opportunities where people maybe could have noticed there was a problem or looking back where you wished someone would have said something maybe at school or with healthcare providers, times when people could have asked you about your eating? Oh my goodness, so many times. It's unreal. 
I think about it all the time. It's honestly one of the biggest driving factors for like how I treat my mental health patients and how, how not just mental health patients, patients, just like seeing all aspects of care. My mom and I are very close. We, we look back on the experience and realize beyond like my primary care, there was so many people who disregarded and just didn't recognize my underlying issues from doctors to dentists to physical therapists. There were like a hundred instances as I had constant headaches. I was put on and off different medications, stomach problems, but because I wasn't noticed underweight or hadn't lost a certain amount of weight because I had always, always kind of been small, I was just tested and tested for a myriad of myriad of things that never really mounted to anything. I had near hip fractures and cavities and irregular periods, but I was always treated for the physical symptoms of what was like a true, true mental illness. Like it was always, how can we get the, the symptoms to stop? So yeah, that's something that there were a lot of opportunities. And that was just really in high school. Once, once I got to college, there were times where, well, I'll get into it, but like where I just wish that somebody would have asked. Yeah, I think that's a that's a really important message. I think that we often, looking back, wished that somebody would have asked. And and I think people sometimes worry about what to say and how to say it, and they don't know quite how to ask. That that concept of like, oh, I really wish somebody would have asked. I think is important. So let's keep that keep that in mind. What? How did you feel in the midst of that? Did you ever sort of suspect you had an eating disorder? Did you have words for it? Did you have names for it? How did how did you feel in the middle of it all? As a teenager in high school, I, I knew without a doubt I had an eating disorder. I used to take eating disorder quizzes online all the time. And I don't, I think it was just for me to, like I thought maybe one more quiz that you get categorized as you're sick will will make you say something. It, but it really, it didn't. I was incredibly defensive whenever it was addressed. Anything, like pretty much anything beyond the medical management of my symptoms, I was intensely defensive. I look back and I'm like, oh, I'm so mean to my parents. They're such lovely people. But I'd say in college, the lines became really blurry for me. A lot of the college environment just fosters some pretty toxic and dangerous behaviors. And because I was constantly swinging my weight back and forth, I just, I was in this narrative of I'm not sick enough to deserve to get better. If no one is noticing, then clearly it's not indicative of help, which is, is such an internal lie. As a junior and a senior in college, I was really, really unwell mentally, had a really great facade of being the happy put together kind of religious girl, honestly. Um, And I knew something was really wrong, but I, I just didn't have the language to articulate it. That makes a lot of sense. I think that is also a, a common experience of maybe thinking something's not right, but not quite having the language and then being worried, scared, nervous, you know, lots of different emotions around trying to give it language. And recognizing that something's sort of not quite right is often that first step, but we know that there's some really challenging ones after the first step of somebody tries to reach out for help. Tell us a little bit about your early experiences seeking help and how that went. I had a really long and hard road finding help. Didn't get real help till I was a senior in college, which at that point I had been struggling for 
well over six years with this cycle. Yeah, it, I, I couldn't really function anymore my senior year and it was your last year of nursing school was very challenging and things that were never hard for me before became very difficult. I had a relationship tank, nothing, everything was pretty much falling apart. Couldn't, couldn't go a day without a panic attack. Parents came up, um, not to, not to like rescue me from school, but in a way, yeah, absolutely. I, I will, I will give them that. Um, my head was a really scary place to live in at that point. And before this time I used to call, like I knew something was wrong. I, I used to call my colleges. They have a CAPS hotline. It's counseling and psychological services. I used to call them in the morning before my roommates would wake up. I later found out they heard me. And it's like a hotline for mental health and they can connect you with all different resources. But I could not for the life of me tell the truth that I was in a literal crisis. I, I couldn't do it. Every time I got on the phone, I pretty much told them school makes me anxious because it was like a very safe thing for me to say. And I harbored like a massive amount of shame for what I was going through. So I just, I could not say it because I wasn't like realistically in a crisis to the, to these people. I was put on an eight week wait list through my, my college for therapy services, which was really rough. I almost gave up at that point because I felt like if they could have me wait eight weeks, I must not need help. Like it's, it's clearly not serious. When my parents did come up, and I have had so many incredible loving roommates throughout my life give me a little mini intervention, we started the search for help. But still at that point, was not telling the truth, honestly, was just like, my anxiety is terrible, my relationship ended, so it was a really good way to say, oh, breakup's the worst. Um, little did they know there was, there was quite a lot going on in coping with that relationship, but yeah, so that was very difficult to be kind of rejected along the way. But I think like the most healing part is when I, when I finally started to get the help I needed. So tell us a little bit about that. How did you wind up getting the help you needed? Who or what was the catalyst for getting you connected to care? Yeah, this is the better part of my story is obviously the healing part. I will just, first of all, have to say that like give major props to anybody that is like in a crisis in the depths of an eating disorder and doesn't have people who are going to like fight with them and like help them get care because that was really important to me. My parents connected me with, they got, they got me finally a, just a general therapist still was under the guise of just anxiety breakup difficulties. I had one particularly difficult night was going to therapy, was like starting medication. I was like, the world is getting, it's better enough to tolerate. I can function, you know, it's like life with a caveat as Lindsay Hall sometimes says. But I, I went to a new church that year and it became like my sanctuary. I, I felt safe. I felt loved, known, understood. And after a particularly hard Saturday night, um, one Sunday, I um, the pastor was telling this really beautiful sermon. There was a lot of things that I held really tightly onto, obviously, and kept in secret as a Christian. But the pastor's sermon, he ended it with, what won't you let even Jesus touch? And this really hit me, obviously. I was withholding a lot. That in my faith, I believed God desperately wanted to heal. So after church, I went up to him and I asked him to pray for me. And I wrote down telling him that for years I'd been struggling with eating. He prayed deeply for me, but what I think is really important is that he recognized he 
couldn't treat me alone. Prayer wasn't going to do it alone. We needed professionals. We needed a team of people who were going to help you. And he got me connected to a nutritionist through Penn State, my school, called Heals, free to students. It was, I saw a nutritionist and that's when she was like, I think you need to see more than just me. And finally, <laughs> I was getting connected with the resources and then COVID hit. So I was about to graduate college. Well, not about, but it was my last semester of school. Went home and pretty much told my family everything after just this long and brutal process. Um, they got me connected with the Emily program in Pittsburgh. They have, I know you guys are in Minnesota. I'm out, I'm out on this side in Pennsylvania. But from then on, my lockdown time and my, the rest of my online school, pretty much my quarantine was spent fighting this thing and healing and physically and mentally just had a team of people through Penn State Heals and Emily program and support groups who were just helping me find this freedom that I just really desperately needed. That's a beautiful story of, of how the courage it takes to, to let it all out to somebody and then hopefully the response that comes that helps us then to find the connections we need. And your story illustrates that so beautifully. How about the role of your family in this whole process? So you called them and you sort of let them know everything and, and it sounds like they rallied to support you. How were they supportive? I cannot thank my mom enough for her help. She is the most gentle but firm woman I know. Not only helped, helped me get therapist finally, but did tons of research to understand me. Watched YouTube videos of Katie Morton, who's this eating disorder therapist. Read Life Without Ed and the Jennifer Rollins eating disorder book. Like she was just like, threw herself into it because it's like her daughter and she wanted to get it. She also sat with me as I cried in the kitchen at night, um, distracted me and kept me accountable. We had this it's persisted. The no lying rule from now on, no lying. And that was really huge because for somebody who was morally opposed to lying, I did a lot of lying, you know, for a Christian girl who, who, do, who doesn't want to, did a lot of that. So not only did recovery bring all the things recovery does, but it brought me to what I really wanted to align with and a lot of things in my faith. Something that also kept me going was my baby niece, Ella. She just turned one last week, but when my sister told me she was pregnant, it kind of shook me. Like, I didn't know if I could have kids, and it just became very real. I was in a very dark place, and I was just like, I, she has to be, like, one of the reasons that I, I get better. And now, now that she's in this beautiful world and she's one years old, she just wants me, to, she makes me want to be like an example of a strong, healthy woman. And we say such, we build her up so much. Um, and I just, I have no doubt she's going to, yeah, grow up like in a different view of like bodies and perception of food than, than our culture has. Because we, as a family, have changed a lot. What a gift you're giving her. That's amazing. And I hope that that's the future that we're all slowly building together. We all wish it were a little faster, I think, but it is a, a beautiful story of contributing to that, that shift that we want to see. Uh, it sounds uh, like your, your mom really dove in and was, was there and tried to educate, which is 
it's eating disorders are complicated. They're messy illnesses. They don't make a lot of sense to somebody who's not experiencing them often. So I think that that commitment to try to learn and and be there is is really telling. And one of the things that support people can do is start to learn. There's so much to learn and start to learn, pick one place and, and go. So I, I think that's great advice that you have embedded in there. And then that concept of how do you, how do you do that part that we each can do to change the world a little bit for the, the next people that come along. And I, I wanted to underscore one other thing you said around the, the lying and how you could see that this thing you were doing was not in line with your values. And I think that happens really frequently for people. I just want to underscore that because I think people start to feel really bad about that. And, and then it becomes a, a secret that they can't tell the truth about. And then it gets all snarled up on itself that eating disorders lead people to behave in ways that are, it is not in line with their values or with who they are because they're really fierce illnesses that get us to do things that we would never do. I, if we weren't ill. And so I think that's a really important thing to underscore in your story that, that you have been able to recognize. So let's talk more about this life and recovery. What are you dreaming of working toward now? How do you keep yourself healthy and, and recovery minded today? Yeah, um, that's the best part is recovery. Life and recovery is, I think you might expect it to be like, not messy, but it still is. But it's messy without an eating disorder. It's better. <laughs> Life in recovery is, is absolutely beautiful. I started my career as a registered nurse in the middle of a pandemic, which was extremely chaotic. I started out working in an ICU. So much of my eating disorder and kind of like this guise that I grew up under was like, do the hardest thing, do the, be the smartest, be the best. Um, and I think I had this perception of the ICU as that's how, that's where I have to be. It's, it's, you know, I mean, you could even tell during COVID, like they were like the legit nurses who were like on the front lines with, with, I mean, it's, it's true. Like there was just because you, well, my therapist through the Emily program said, maybe she'll listen to this. Hi, Allison. But um, she always said, cause she was with me through this, just because you can doesn't mean you should. And that, stuck with me through a lot of things. Um, I was in such a solid recovery spot before I started in the ICU and it was extremely compromising and challenging to work there. I switched shifts. I couldn't see family members. I was taking COVID patients. I was witnessing deaths. I wasn't, and it was not how, what I expected. It was not I felt very incompetent. I just felt like it, it wasn't the place for me. So after six months there, I transferred to another pediatrics unit that is kind of a, I wouldn't say like a modge podge, but like it's a medical surgical floor. But at that time during COVID, as I'm sure you guys know, psychiatric disorders, everything was on the rise. We had sometimes half our unit was was teenagers who, who had attempted to take their life or teenagers who, who needed rehabilitation for eating disorders. Um, so it was half psych and then half, it, it's, it, goes, it varies day to day, respiratory illnesses, all kinds of things. But I transferred down to there because I valued my life enough to not compromise the recovery I'd worked so hard for. And recovery like really wasn't 
wasn't going to be compatible with being an ICU nurse, at least not your first year, which I think was a really big move for me because I struggle a lot with people's perception of me and felt felt like they would perceive me as failing um, as an ICU nurse. So that took a lot in me, taught me a lot about not doing thing for, things for other people and thinking forward to the future. My gosh, I'm so grateful I switched. It is such a good place for me. Much more recovery oriented. I have time to pee if I want to and, and eat, which is good. But yeah, my life in, in this space of recovery isn't indicated by food, but I have a really unconditional and fun relationship with food now. I used to run all the time. I, I ran for the first time in forever last week. And I was like, I think I'll just dance instead. I started doing lots of dancing instead. There's things I just do because they make me happy. And I just feel like I always felt like I wasn't enough. And now I occasionally question if I'm too much, like in a fun way, like oh, I might be a little too much for this situation. Like I always felt like I was never enough. And now I'm like, I am bring a lot to this to this environment. I feel very, I feel like I belong at my workplace and they were the ones who actually really encouraged me to like look beyond because with all these psych kids, a lot of our nurses had not done a lot of treatment with psych kids, but I was like, I understand it. Like I get it. And so I wanted to take those kids and my coworkers were like, Hey, you're really good with them. Like it's, it's difficult to sit and talk through something with somebody like some people would rather just give a med or or give an injection you know what I mean somewhat some people would rather just treat the medical side of things but I really love taking care of them and I had a friend who who was also in graduate school to become a nurse practitioner and she said I think you should go for it like I and I was like no way I'd get in absolutely not but I had this dream I was like I I always thought I'd become a nurse practitioner and part of it I used to believe was because of that I need to be like get higher 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 but now I don't have that perspective I just have like a different drive and passion for the direction of nursing I want to go so I got into graduate school at University of Duquesne it's in Pittsburgh Pennsylvania they have a nurse practitioner program that it's a really long name psychiatric mental health, NP. So I'll be getting my master's. So I'm starting that next month. And I am so pumped for that. And I have no idea where I'm going to go after that. And that used to freak me out. But now I kind of think it's beautiful that there's going to be so many options for me. So from that perspective, I have a lot of dreams. I, I want to be a mom one day. So I got to keep going on this path. And I don't know, I just think about my daily life. I'm more present at social gatherings. I have the energy to do things I didn't before. The way I feel like I've been keeping myself from slipping is just refusing to compromise compromise for the life that I've, I've fought really hard to live. I also, I, I want to reform mental health ministry in the church. I think that's a big part of my story. I didn't grow up in a church that had the resources that I so wonderfully stumbled upon in college are the people who understood, you know, I think it's, it's a slippery slope with a lot of churches. And I really, I don't know, I would like to work with some type of ministry to offer mental health resources within a community where people don't have access. There's a lot of churches that sponsor Alcoholics Anonymous meetings, but not very many that deal with eating disorders. And I think we would be really surprised if we took a look at 
the prototype mind of a lot of Christian boys and girls and adults who have characteristics of eating disorders. I think we'd be so surprised how many people in our church do, and we either aren't seeking help because we have shame, or for me, it was a lot of things, obviously. I went through a long time without telling anybody, but I, yeah, I just really too long to change the story in Christianity with that. That's an awesome view of the future, Kelsey. We're so excited for you and, and hope to keep hearing about it as you go. I'm curious what what message you might have for others who, who might be struggling, somebody maybe who's listening, maybe a college student, maybe other people of faith. A lot of times we hear people you know, sort of say like, oh yeah, that's, that's great. That's all good and well for you, but that's not going to happen for me. Uh, what would you say to them as they're listening to your story and maybe relating to parts of it? As far as college students, I would just be wary of the environment you're in. I know a lot of kids this year will be going back to physical in-person college and they've probably been online. It is a really great time, but it's also like it's okay if you need help. It's the first time you're leaving, probably. I just surround yourself with support. To those people who of the Christian faith, there there's nothing too dirty that he can't make worthy is like a big thing that I've always thought like, and you're not dirty because of the things you've done. Um, you are not the things you've done. Um, you're not in your mistakes. And um, if you're a Christian, then you deserve the freedom that that Jesus died to give us. So much shame can come out of looking at our mistakes and believing that they define us. But if we truly like dive into the Bible, we see that we're not we're not our mistakes. There there is freedom from the things that you think make you so messed up or so different. Yeah, I would just also say there are churches who will will support your emotional and mental health while you grow deeper in Christ and I would say find one because it is life-changing. Kelsey, thank you. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you for sharing your story. Thank you for your inspiration and for sharing your dreams with us. We're really excited for you and really want to honor the journey you've taken to get here and look forward to seeing where it takes you next. So thank you so much for your time today. Yeah, thank you guys so much for having me. You're welcome. If you enjoyed today's episode of Piecemeal, please subscribe, rate, or leave a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Learn more about us at emilyprogram.com and veritascollaborative.com or search Emily Program and Veritas Collaborative on social media. Piecemeal is produced by Angie Mitchell and Nancy Linden with music by Dan Forkey. Until next time, take care. Thanks for listening.